listening to the Arise Church podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to finish that chapter today. Uh, we've been walking through the uh, book of Colossians for this month or for this year or whatnot, and uh, here we find ourselves rounding out and ending Colossians chapter 1. And um, I anticipate that it will be an encouragement to your heart as it has been to mine as I've studied this week. To introduce, I'll just say and call out that big elephant in the room, it's Super Bowl Sunday. And Super Bowl Sunday means that it comes down to this, that at the end of the day, there are 30 teams who are at home watching a game. 32 teams in the NFL, and there's only two more teams left who have played and prepared and done everything that they could to get to this moment. All the other teams can only hope that next year they get to land in the game and things go different. But for the 49ers and the Chiefs, it all comes down to this. It can be said that this season the Chiefs and the 49ers have been the two best teams in the league, and that's why they are here. Hasn't been without struggle, though. I was looking at some statistics. The Kansas City Chiefs have 14 people this year who they've placed on injured reserve. They've left the field never to come back. 49ers, 16. It's cost them. But I would say that none of this stopped the team. And in fact, I'm sure that today multiple of those players, those injured players, those 30 guys who I spoke of in passing with no name, they played and they practiced and they left it all in the field and it cost them and it was a sacrifice and they don't regret it at all, not one bit. They played and practiced their hearts out. And sure, sure, it was costly, but it was for the team. And so for at least 14 people today, at least 14 people today, it was a sacrifice that they would say was worth making and a risk worth taking because at the end, they'll be the victors. As we look at our text for today, I'm going to kind of coach us through these scriptures as we look at Paul's ministry and God's mystery my hope is that by the time we get to the end, we ourselves will be encouraged to remember the victory that has been won for us as we work towards the goal. Let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 down to 29 together. Paul has just come out of this hymn where he's singing of the beauty, the majesty, and the glory of Jesus Christ and saying that he is supreme and that the message of his life and what he has done to reconcile us to God needs to be proclaimed throughout all of the world to every single creature in all of creation. And then he says, I became a minister. Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's walk through this and consider together five quick points We'll be able to make some observations from this text on Paul's perspective, Paul's position, God's plan, Paul's play, and Paul's pursuit. Paul's perspective, God's, or Paul's position, God's plan, Paul's play, and Paul's pursuit. Again, keeping with the football analogy, I think it just makes sense for us to walk through this in this manner. I hope it's an encouragement to your heart. First, let's look at Paul's perspective. Where does he start? He says, I rejoice now in my suffering. Paul considers himself to be, uh, have been entrusted with or given a ministry from God the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be a servant. That's what the word minister would essentially say. He says, I'm a slave of the church. I'm a servant of the church. I'm not the person who would go first. I'm not the one who is to be worshipped. No, not at all. I'm just a servant of other people, servant of God's body. And you know what? That has cost me. At least you forget, Paul finds himself in a jail cell writing to a group of Christians who he doesn't even know. He's writing to the, Col the Colossians. He's written to the Philippians. He's written to the Ephesians. And now he's writing and he's saying, I'm thankful for you. And I sit here in this prison cell because I'm preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and it has cost me, but I rejoice in that. Paul doesn't have a mindset or a perspective that causes him to say, I'm struggling and this is not fair. It wasn't just. He had not done anything illegal. It was not anything that he had done that should have landed him there because in, he, uh, in some way he had sinned against someone or some manner. No, Paul found himself in a prison cell, suffering, as he says, for your sake. And he took joy in that. You might remember, or at least you can recall, if you have your Bible with you, you can look up, and he said that he had prayed for the Colossians, and he prayed earnestly for them that they would learn how to be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for all endurance and patience giving thanks to God the Father because of the gospel. Paul has a ministry just like Jesus. He never uh, requires something from the people, or he never calls them to do something that he himself does not do. 
He's just prayed for them and said, I want you to be able to go through all kinds of turmoil, and I want you to be able to endure it, and I want you to be able to be patient, and I want you to be able to do that with an attitude of gratitude. And then he says, and I'm here in jail, and I'm grateful for that because I'm suffering on your behalf. That's the attitude of a champion. That's the mindset. That's the perspective of a person who is not in a place to say, woe is me, but more so, God, you are most glorious, and God's people, I love you. I love you. And I'm suffering, but I'm rejoicing in my suffering because it's for your sake. He goes on from there and shares more about his perspective or his uh, mindset. And what he says is, I'm not only suffering, he said, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is a hard text to understand. What was it that Christ somehow did not fully suffer on behalf of his people? Is it some way That Paul, in his mind, is saying that I am filling up or I am completing the afflictions that didn't land on Christ, and so now I am your Savior. Before we get too far down that road, throughout the book of Colossians and in all of the rest of the New Testament, that was always the heresy that was being rejected. That there was some other person or some other way for a person to be saved. So we know, even just with our own logic, that it couldn't have been that that's what Paul was saying. His mindset wasn't that I'm filling up Christ's afflictions and I'm doing this in a manner that will save you. No, rather he's saying, I'm sacrificing for you. Filling up Christ's afflictions, and he says there for the second time, for the sake of his body, that is the church. He puts the church in the lap of God. He puts his trust in the Lamb of God and says, I am suffering, and it is a sacrifice, and even the things that happen to me in my body are really for the sake of his body, because as I go through this, my jail cell means your freedom. My persecution means your encouragement, and so on and so forth. And so for Paul, filling up the afflictions of Christ in his body was just a joyful exercise of sacrificing on behalf of God's people. He saw this as an opportunity. He saw his life as an opportunity to suffer with an attitude that said, Jesus paid it all. God gave it all. And so here am I. His life was a sacrifice. And it was poured out on behalf of others. This could be found in multiple Bible texts where he talked about himself being poured out like a drink offering. He even said about himself, I beat my body and make it my slave. And he doesn't say that he does that for his own purposes. He keeps coming back and saying, for you, for your sake, for his body, for the church. It's no different here. So Paul's mindset, Paul's perspective is that he rejoices even though he suffers, and he does so because he's suffering on behalf of Christ's body, the church. Now, Paul not only had the right perspective, he understood and he played his position. This is our second point, Paul's position. What does he say next? He says, uh, I'm filling up Christ's 
afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul saw his position as a minister. So he has now said three times in the last three verses that he's a minister. I became a minister. I'm suffering as a minister. And I'm so grateful to be a minister. How much do we talk like that? You know, a minister is a servant of other people. A minister is not a high, like, uh, exalted position where it gets you some kind of rule and authority and prestige. No, a minister is, 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 is Jesus Christ disrobing himself, taking off the towel or the, the cloth that he had on and wrapping it around himself as a towel and washing the dirty, muddy feet of his disciples before they eat because they all came in to recline at the table with the king. Somebody else is going to do it. He took the place of a slave. That's what a minister is. A minister is a person who serves other people for their good and does so with joy. Paul didn't see himself as a minister because of something that he created on his own in terms of a place that he just took or some authority that he usurped. Instead, he saw himself ministering to the body of Christ because it was given to him. Did you catch that? I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me. So not only is he a minister, but he sees himself as a manager. I'm not the owner. You're not my people. You're Jesus' people. I'm not the one who gets to take credit for anything, but I labor for your benefit. I'm even willing to suffer for your benefit. And at the end of the day, all I'm doing is stewarding what God has entrusted to me and called me to do. That's the attitude of a servant leader, a minister, and a steward. I just manage it. Have you ever been given anything that a person says, hey, I want you to guard this and I'm going to come back for it? In that time, sometimes you're more nervous than you ever have been. My keys are sitting somewhere over there right now. I'm not thinking about them. But last week, Daisy gave me Jeff's key to the building and said, hey, uh, I'm supposed to give this back, but he's gone, and it's yours, so I want you to make sure. And I kept playing with her. I, I, didn't, I didn't touch that key. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure when you're holding on to something from another person. But you know what? The reality is the pressure comes oftentimes because we're thinking about what we have and how it rests on us. Paul didn't have that mindset. Paul saw himself being a steward that was given stewardship or management by God. And God is the one who is on the throne. God has all authority. God is the one who sent his son that we read about last week. He's supreme. He's above all. He created all. He sustains all. He holds all together. Everything is created for him and by him and through him. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So for Paul, God called me to this. He's given me this ministry. Now you understand why the verses that we, in some ways, skipped in this chapter, verse number one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, is not just an introduction and a salutation that doesn't matter. God has willed that I would be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and just so you don't get too excited about who I am, I'm really just a servant. I'm really just a minister. And I'm doing things on your behalf because I've been given a gift from God to steward it on your behalf. 
So Paul's perspective and his position really lead us to understanding that he could rejoice while struggling as a servant and as a steward because he understood something. Our next point shows us that he struggled and he rejoiced while doing that. And he was a person who saw himself as a steward and he saw himself as a servant because he understood God's plan. He understood that it truly was God's plan and he understood what God's plan was. Look back at the text with me. At the end of verse 25, he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul's stewardship wasn't just something that was given to him uh, uh, to go around now and to tout and say, I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor. So, you know, I've been thinking about getting a clergy collar. I was telling somebody, they're like, what, really? I'm like, yeah, like walk around, people will say, oh, I know what he's about, right? Uh, But for whatever reason, I think that way. Paul didn't think like I need to go and present myself in any manner to be seen or known uh, as anything other than a person who is called to make the word of God known. I'm called to make the word of God known, to make the word of God fully known, he says. What he's saying is, whether I'm in prison or I'm not in prison, whether I'm with you or I've never met you, whether I'm from here or I'm not from here, I've been called here to spread the word of God. That's not just Paul's mission. That's your mission. That's my mission. That's what we have been called to do as ministers. Ministers. Servants of one another, servants of God, stewards of God's grace, those who have been redeemed and reconciled in Jesus Christ, we've been given an opportunity to spread the word. You ever heard good news? And understood that that good news wasn't just for you, but it was going to affect so many others? What did you do? Did you keep it to yourself or did you spread the word? Let it be known. That's the idea. That you would be a herald, a person that says, hey, I don't want to keep this to myself. You guys have got to hear this. By the will of God, Paul saw that God's plan was to make the word fully known through him, to spread it. He goes on and he talks more about God's plan. And he literally says that it's to make the word of God fully known. And then he goes on and says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word of God, he now turns into a mystery. Was it to mystify it and to hide it? No, it was actually to expose it and the accessibility of it, he calls it a mystery. And he says that it was a mystery that used to be hidden, but now is clearly seen. It's clearly seen and accessible. If you remember anything, or just for background, the Gnostics, the false teachers who are traveling around Colossae and have even infiltrated the church are talking about higher superior knowledge that is only exclusively received by an elite few. And so you got to follow a man and you just got to go way beyond Jesus. You got to dig so much deeper if you're really going to understand what God's plan is. And Paul comes and he 
cuts that down and says, God's plan is a mystery that used to be hidden for all ages and all generations, but now it's revealed. And where is it revealed? It's revealed to his saints. He had written to this little bitty forgotten church of just a few people that was in the shadow of Laodicea, in the shadow of Ephesus, where they just felt like nobody even really knew who they were. And he had called them saints, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, 20 verses ago. Just a couple sentences. He writes and he says, the mystery that has been hidden for ages and for generations that nobody could understand, that nobody could see, is being revealed to you. It's being revealed through you. And if you want to get even more technical alongside Paul, he says it's being revealed in you. To them, speaking about the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Say it with me, Christ in you. Did you see that? In Colossians verse number 27, he said that the mystery is the riches of the glory, or, or rich and they're glorious, and it is Christ in you. Paul has spoken so much about how we are in Christ. We're in Christ. We're together in him. He wrote to the Ephesians and said things that are so lofty, and how do you even understand them? That you're seated with Christ in heavenly places even right now, somehow spiritually. And they always understood that that had to do with their reconciliation to God through the cross. And now all of a sudden, he says that the mystery is revealed, and it is that Christ is in you. And he's speaking to these Gentiles who live in Colossae, who have been forgotten, and who are otherwise regarded as being cut off from the commonwealth of God's people, and they don't have any promises. They don't have any hope in the world. He says, there are riches and there's glory. Christ is in you. The hope of glory. The hope of glory. If you think about what we have thrust, I think we keep talking about what hope is. What is true biblical hope? What is uh, the, the proper perspective of hope? And it's more than just, right, this kind of wishful thinking. We've shown from the Bible time and time again that the hope laid up for us is based on a sure promise because God who cannot lie has promised it to us. And so when we think about our hope, it is a confident expectation that what God says is going to come to pass will happen. And you know what that does? It doesn't just give us a, a good thought to look toward heaven one day, that changes and it transforms the way we live right here and right now. That's transformative. It changes our lives forever and ever. And when he's saying this to them, he's saying, in effect, that you're being told on one side that you can find redemption and you can find significance and you can find higher spiritual knowledge only in everything other than Christ. And he just went through and said, Christ is supreme. He's supreme above all. He created all. 
And guess what? Christ is in you. And since Christ is in you, you should no longer think of yourself as subordinate to people who would try to use upmanship and tower themselves over you because of their accomplishments or some opinions they have, etc., etc. Rather, you should see that God has chosen and determined to make himself known to any and everybody. To everyone. Not just the, uh, the spiritual elite. God's plan is not about exclusion. It's inclusion. It's not about division at all. It's not about a, a place of, you know, this person is smarter, wiser, and so therefore he should get a front row seat. And that young woman or, or young uh, man isn't, so they should be out toward the back seat. In the kingdom of God, he says, all of you, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, Christ is in you. And that's something that is a mystery to everybody in all of creation, and it's revealed in the church. It's revealed in the saints. That's why I don't have a problem suffering on your behalf. Can you follow Paul's train of thought? He's getting ready to say, and he's basically saying the gospel is for everyone. As he goes from understanding God's eternal plan, now he realizes that we must develop and we must strategize to have the right place. Read with me what he says next. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then in verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Paul's play is to understand the gospel is for everyone. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to proclaim, I'm going to preach the gospel to everyone. And when people come, no matter who they are and where they're from, they come to faith. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to warn everyone. That word warn, uh, is, uh, it means to admonish or to counsel. Basically, to come alongside a person and to set them straight. I studied nuthetic counseling. The word is nuthetale. It just basically means to counsel a person from the Bible in order to get them back on track. Paul says, I'm not going to send you across the river to another person. I'm just going to warn you as you have come in, no matter who you are, and admonish you according to these things. And then he says, I'm going to teach everyone. So I'm going to proclaim to everyone. I'm going to warn or admonish or counsel everyone. And then he says that I'm going to teach everyone. And he's doing this like emphatically repeating himself over and over again. Almost sounds just like I'm saying, like a broken record. Like, why do you keep saying everyone? Why do you keep saying everyone? He's doing it on purpose because he's going back to say the gospel's for everyone, not just for the elite. The gospel's for everyone, not just for the Jews. The gospel's for everyone, not just for the people who profess themselves to have higher learning. The gospel's for everyone. And so what I'm going to do at every moment that I can and with every fiber in my being is I'm going to preach, proclaim, right? Preach and proclaim. I'm going to warn, admonish, counsel, and I'm going to teach. The teach word is just the idea of instructing a person with how they ought to go. This is obedience to the Great Commission. Make disciples and teach them to observe all that I have commanded. You 
You know, as we started, we spent a lot of time reciting and rehearsing what our plays are as we launched. And one thing we kept revisiting was this idea of this coach, Vince Lombardi, and coaching the Packers in the 60s. May I remind you that after losing the championship to the Eagles in 61, Vince walked into the locker room with those all-pro players and held up a pigskin, and instead of drawing up something really fancy, he started back at the basics, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Six months later, they were back in a championship, and they defeated the Giants 37-0. to You know why? Because they got the plan down and they ran the right plays. And ultimately, they understood what their pursuit was. Let's look at Paul's. Paul's pursuit. Verse 29, him we proclaim, warning every, or I'm sorry, verse 28 at the end, he says, uh, we're teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. The reason we do this is that we might put, present everyone mature in Christ. He says, I'm doing this and struggling and working for you on your behalf because I want to develop you into who you were created to be. Doesn't matter who you are, you're created in the image of God, and I want to see you raised up to be a person who is matured in Christ, developed and raised up to full full capacity. Paul's pursuit was the maturity of the church. He wasn't a person that says, I'm going to save them and somebody else will sanctify or to help them, to grow them. He was a person that said, I'm going to preach to everyone. I'm going to warn everyone. I'm going to teach everyone. And I'm going to do that in order to present everyone mature. And he's focusing on the everyone over and over and over again because they're being told, you don't cut it. You're blue collar, you're subpar, you're poor, you're not enough. You're not ethnically part of the people of God. You don't measure up. Paul says, no. I'm doing this to develop everyone. And then he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For this, the development and the maturity of any and everybody, that's why I toil. This word toil means that you work with all of your effort, even to the point that you become weary. I have to believe that there was a time where those football players had heard from Vince Lombardi and were embarrassed and even uh, maybe a little bit, they felt undermined because he walked in and said, gentlemen, this is a football. We just got to the championship, sir. But instead, they got over themselves and to go back into the next championship and to win 37-0 against another top-tier team, you know what they probably did? They worked tirelessly. They worked really hard, even though it may have caused them to become weary. Paul saw himself doing that on behalf of the church and behalf of everyone. He said, this, for this reason, I toil. I work with all my effort until I grow weary. 
And then he couples that word. He says, I toil struggling. The word is, is, is it, it basically it means agony. It sounds just like agony in the original language. It means to agonize over something. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, I work with all effort to grow weary, and I agonize to contend as though I'm going to win a, win a prize. This word is really only used in the original language toward games, toward Olympics, a person who's working in a contest and trying to actually win a prize or a trophy or to be a victor. He says, I toil struggling for you, the prize would be that you would be mature in Christ, that you would know your identity in him, that you'd be built up in him, and that he is supreme would be your proclamation, and that he is supreme would be your lifestyle because you've learned his ways. You've become Christ-like. He's speaking as a person who's engaged in an intense athletic contest or even warfare for your maturity, for the church, for the spread of the word. I toil, struggling, agonizing, as though for a prize. I consider going to the Super Bowl. Maybe somebody can grab it right now. You might have it on your phone. See what the score is thus far. Let me just fill in some blanks without having to do all that. Right now, it's whatever to whatever in the first or second quarter. And whoever's leading or whoever's losing has adjustments and thoughts to make because the game is online and this is what it all comes down to. If the Chiefs are going to win, if the 49ers are going to win, they've got to do it all. They've got to get it all, they've got to understand it all, and they've got to work with their all. If they're going to win, come back, or maintain their lead, whatever's going on in the game, they are going to have to have it all, the right perspective, the right people in the right positions, the right plan, the right plays. That's the only way they're going to get to their pursuit, which is the Vince Lombardi trophy. They're going after something that passes away. But I guarantee you they're working tirelessly, agonizing. There are even those who can't be on the field, but with everything that they have in them emotionally, because they've been hurt for the year, they are struggling and toiling, and the coaches are doing everything they can to call the right plays, to put the right people in the right positions, to put the ball in the right place at the right time, because it's that big of a deal. It's football. Regardless of your attitude about football, I know that you can hear that there's a lesson for us in all of this. Man, if we understand our victory, we're going to emulate the Apostle Paul, and we're going to have an attitude just like his, even when we suffer, knowing that we're suffering on behalf of other people. If we imitate the attitude of Paul, we're going to understand that I have a role and a position to play, and I'm a partner, and I participate in the local church and even in God's like overall story of redemption and his plan, and I'm going to do all that I can on behalf of others because 
Man, God's plan is, is God's plan. It's the only thing that matters. It's way bigger. It's way bigger than the plans that have been drawn up for at least the last couple weeks on how we're going to overtake the next team. God's plan is eternal, and it's about those who overcome in this world into the next. A trophy is at stake in a game. Life, eternal life, eternal destiny is at stake. When you're talking about the gospel and the church, My prayer is that we would understand the victory that has been won and that we would leave it all on the field. And that even as Paul has ended here, we would leave it on the field by the grace of God and with his power that he has given us. Not because we just uh, like will ourselves into a whole bunch of hard work. This is not a call for you to go and start serving and doing. This is about being. This is about your identity in Christ. And this is about understanding God's mission and taking that on yourself as this is my personal mission, my ambition. This is my purpose, and this is what I'm going after. We'll work with the power that he's given us, and we'll do it for his glory, and we'll do it for the sake and the good of the church that Christ died to redeem. Christ is supreme. Speak like it, serve like it, steward your gifts like it, sacrifice on behalf of other people like it, and steward the mystery, proclaim the mystery like it. Gospelize in your conversations. Everything walking should know that you got good news that you want for everyone to have because it's not just for you. We ought to be striving toward the goal, and the goal is when you get to Revelation, you see a ma- a, a, you know, a miles and miles of people, a multitude of people that can't be numbered who are all around the throne worshiping and praising the Lamb of God who has redeemed us. That's our calling. That's our opportunity. That's the beauty of you know, being a part of the body of Christ. And I would just say that we don't even have to look back toward Paul per se. This week in our gospel communities, we started out with the icebreaker and just said, who's a person that you would want to emulate and imitate their faith, hope, and love? I heard people talk about youth pastors and old missions pastors. I heard people talk about authors. I heard people talk about one another before. The, 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 the deal is we have the examples. They're right here before us. If you're like me, you're perplexed even by the comfort and ease that we have here and maybe sometimes the fewer examples that we have here while at the one and the same time Facebook is just eager to let you know about a Nigerian pastor who is abducted by Boko Haram on January 3rd and they show you the video of him standing there with the flag and he just says, I'm all right, Jesus is still on the throne, don't get sad, don't be worried and by the 20th he was beheaded and killed. There's still people who suffer rejoicing on behalf of the church. Is that my attitude? Is that our? Is that something that we're all grateful to do? 
and willing to do. By the grace of God and with the power of God that he works in us, we should be using all of our energy to fan that in flame and to ask God that, hey, if I don't have to suffer like that, give me more opportunities. Fly the door wide open. Let me look for every opportunity I can to evangelize, gospelize, edify, encourage, warn, teach. I mean, I just want to be talking about the word. I want to spread the word. I want to make the word of God fully known because I can.